Welcome everyone to Smart Talks, put on by the Elizabeth Smart Foundation. I am Elizabeth Smart and I am here with my co-host, Mio Strong, who is our director of our self-defense program called Smart Defense. And I'm actually gonna turn the time over for her today to introduce our guest, so Mio. Yes, thanks Elizabeth. Uh, today I'm super excited because my best friend, Chelsea Kilpack, who also happens to be an incredible advocate for women and a very um, highly educated person when it comes to sexual assault prevention. And she is a bad man pajama on the mats with Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu. So she is just an all around great human and one of my idols. So welcome to the show, Chelsea. And thank you so much for um, you know, joining us today and being willing to speak to our audience about your own personal experiences with sexual assault and kind of the path that it's led you down and to this advocacy work that you um, are passionate about and how you've turned that experience into something positive. Well, thanks so much for having me. It is kind of like I get to hang out with my best friend for the first time in three weeks. So I'm a little <laughs> selfish. I was like, yes, please, I'll talk to I'll talk to you both. <laughs> this quarantine stuff. Like this is the only connection that we get now is Zoom unless you're, you know, at home with a bunch of people and it's just me and my husband. So it's nice to see you both. <laughs> you too <laughs> yeah and my people are ages five and under so uh, some, some adult relief is appreciated yeah for sure yes. so Chelsea why don't you tell our audience a little bit about um your education background and um also your martial arts background and then we'll kind of get into what led you down that path yeah, definitely. So um, I'm actually a first generation college student. I attended uh, the University of Utah for my undergraduate degree. I actually pursued a bachelor's of science in gender studies and political science. Uh, with political science, I focused a lot on representation of women and the impact that that has on what is and is not passed. And then as I was finishing up my political science degree, I took this women in politics class that just blew my mind and I decided I needed another bachelor's degree that's a tangent we could talk about on whether you should do that or not <laughs> um, but it, it changed my life and the gender studies program at the University of Utah is actually one of the oldest women's studies programs but they just changed the name to gender studies um, and then after that I went to Westminster College where I got my master's degree in community leadership the best way to contextualize it is it's kind of like a nonprofit uh, MBA, basically. And it was in that program that I focused on sexual assault prevention research. And the thing I love about the MACL program is there has to be a direct tie to a community organization for your research. So I worked with the Men's Violence Prevention Network to provide some resources that they could give to the community um, free of charge uh, to inform their work in men's violence prevention. So that's my education background. Um, that education and I'm a community lecturer. I do self-defense as well and incorporate all of my education with that. I uh, currently sit on the board for the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault. I have been with them for going on three years, and I have done a lot of self-defense to fundraise for them. Um, yeah, and then the mar martial arts background. I actually 
have been training for, gosh, 11, 11 years, I think, with, with a little bit of a break in there, but Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu are my two primary training methods. That's actually where we met. Chelsea and I um, became fast friends at Jiu Jitsu, being, um, you know, a few of the only women at the gym and a few of the only like outspoken liberal women. <laughs> so we automatically kind of bonded together over that and our love of choking people. So <laughs> yeah, we've choked each other quite a bit. And we've also <laughs> called out many a teammate for problematic behavior on the mat. There are things that just <laughs> from the beginning, people learn very quick that will not fly while we are sitting around. <laughs> Yes, being outspoken is one of our positives and negatives. <laughs> we always say a superpower is a blessing and a curse, right? <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, definitely. So tell us a little bit about um, your personal experience with sexual violence and kind of even what we talked about briefly earlier about how jujitsu and the community environment, things like that helped as well. Yeah, so I mean, my personal experience, I think, unfortunately, is pretty similar to a lot of women in particular. Um, the first time I ever touched another person's genitals was by force. Um, it was a boy that I really, really liked, and he was like, let's go for a drive. I, I lived in Magna, I went to Cypress High School. For those who aren't in Salt Lake City or in Utah, it's um, on the west side of the valley. It's a little mining town just at the foot of the Kennecott Copper Mine, um, right by the dump, actually. <laughs> so unfortunately, this young man decided to take me in his truck to the dump and try to get me to touch him, which I had never done before. I was 16 years old and, you know, had crushes on boys and, and, and girls and, you know, was very interested in kissing and things like that, but I had never done anything like that. And that was my very first experience of that type of, I don't even want to say intimacy because it wasn't intimacy, um, but as one of my first sexual experiences. Um, and then unfortunately after that, it was just a lot more coercive experiences. Once when I was drinking and something that started as consensual very quickly turned into a non-consensual experience. Um, also within a consensual relationship, I've experienced date rape and very aggressive behavior in that way. And as I got older and started sharing these experiences, it just became clear that it's so common for so many of us. And while, you know, there's a spectrum of behavior that people experience and there is stranger rape, there's spousal rape, there's molestation. Um, and people tend to assign like my situation wasn't that bad. Um, it's something that I've seen in my work. I was that person. I just have to butt in there for everyone's sake and just say, I don't care if it's spousal rape or stranger rape or friend rape or date rape. Rape is rape and it's never okay. So mm -hmm. never ever say it's not that bad. And I know you know that, but for yeah. everyone out there watching, rape is rape and it's never okay. And you don't compare to anyone else's no. ever. Yeah. Please continue. <laughs> Yeah. No, 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 no. Go ahead, Neil. 
Oh, sorry. I was just going to say this seems to be a common theme where, and I'm guilty of it as well of thinking like, Oh, my situation, it could have been so much worse, but like, I think a previous guest or maybe Elizabeth, it was you that said, you know, nobody cornered the market on sexual violence. Like it's Mm -hmm. sexual violence bottom line. In an attempt, uh, we always say this in our self-defense seminars, an attempt is just as traumatic for a person as something that is completed. It, it, it doesn't matter. There's this spectrum of violence. And I've experienced at various points on that spectrum. And then, but I thought I was alone, right? Because isn't this just how it's supposed to go? You you like a boy and maybe he, he forces you to touch to touch his pen is that how it how it happens and then I started meeting people and talking to them because that outspoken thing I'm like I actually I got some questions for you I want to talk about this and I started to learn that it was common but it also was uncommon in a lot of ways like I would meet people who had very healthy sexual relationships and I was like oh I really like this is not okay um, I also have several family members who have experienced sexual assault. Um, I don't want to get into the details of their stories because they're not mine to share, but countless members of my family have experienced sexual violence, men and women included. So when I went to school and in the gender studies department, um, have any of you, have you, either of you read The Rape of Mr. Smith? No, I haven't. It was this turning point for me where... I realized that sexual violence is just, it is not treated like other crimes. The, the Rape of Mr. Smith, it's a, a fictional transcript of a police officer interviewing a man who's just been robbed. And in the transcript, he's, he's saying, well, why did you go to this ATM at this time of night? Why did you wear your fancy watch? Why did you do these things? They're all questions that, in the past have been more common with police officers asking by like victims of violence that we would never ask somebody who experienced robbery or somebody who was physically assaulted in like a parking lot, like punched in the face. You would never say, what were you doing in that parking lot? But if the same thing happens to a woman and it's sexual violence, it's why were you there? What were you wearing? Have you had sex with people before? Could that person sense that maybe you were open to that kind of thing? I highly recommend it. The Rape of Mr. Smith. It is, it was this moment where I was like, we have to change the conversation because it's happened to me. It's happened to the people that I love. It's continuing to happen across the community and it's being treated unlike anything else. And I think there's a, I think there's a term for that. I mean, those questions in my mind, they fall under the category of victim blaming because what you're really saying is it's your fault because you were there. It's your fault because you went by yourself or you wore that short skirt or you wore that tight dress or you decided to go on this date and that's not how it's supposed to be. No, not at all. We would never, ever apply that line of questioning to somebody else in another violent crime situation. But with sexual violence, the standard is completely different. And I am happy to say that in the time that I've been doing this work, and Elizabeth, you can probably attest to this, there are major changes happening. There are police departments who are putting in so much work uh, with their victim advocate programs and their officer training 
to make sure that there's a victim-centered approach and a trauma-informed approach, but we still have so, so far to go. Um, it's a little daunting. And <laughs> there are times I'm like, are we making a difference? But, but we are, I know that we are, um, because since my gender studies degree, I ended it in 2012, the discourse has completely changed. Time's up, me too, um, you know, intersectionality, victim blaming, rape culture, these things were just in the research that I was reading in this very privileged position. You know, I got to go to school, which so many people in this country don't get to do, let alone around the world. They don't get to go to elementary education. And I was seeing all of these things and then it trickled out into like Tumblr and blogs. And now you can't get on the internet without like, the future is female and we're not going to stand for this and time's up and me too. And the changes are happening and they're happening fast, but there is still so much more to do. <laughs> I'm scared to say this, but I think there will always be more to do. Yeah. I mean, this problem is unfortunately as old as time. You, you look back at, at laws around like spousal rape. It was not that long ago. It was the late 70s. It was still legal in many, many states in this country to treat your wife like property and to abuse her. She couldn't say no. Um, and long before that, I mean, we know women are, men have always had mistresses and it's kind of been this acceptable thing in a lot of cultures. But by a woman would result in death. And that happens in other parts of the world to this day. Um, but yeah, it's an old problem and it's definitely not going away anytime soon as much as we all wish it would. Yeah, it's, it's frankly, it's appalling. Um, one of my questions, I mean, you've talked about being outspoken and pursuing this degree, which I think is amazing. Was there ever a time that you thought maybe you wouldn't because it was a hard subject or sensitive subject for yourself, having been a victim of, of sex crimes? You know, there was a time when I was really interested in pursuing law school and looking specifically at prosecution of sex crimes. And there was a moment with my, my husband, he was just my boyfriend at the time. And he was like, I don't, I don't know that I can sign up for a life that this is the, the sole focus of you coming home every day and talking about this. And initially I was like, well, how dare you tell me what I can and can't pursue as a career? Like, oh, you know, but I, this person who loves me and is very supportive. I, I took that advice to heart and was like, I need to sit with this. Is this the path that I want to pursue? And ultimately I decided it wasn't because the work that I had done, I, I was a victim advocate for unified police department uh, for a year. And what you do is I'm a certified rape crisis counselor through the Utah coalition against sexual assault. Um, and I would go out on these calls, any victim centered call. So death by suicide, um, sexual assault, um, domestic violence, you name it. I would go out on these calls and you would be on call a couple of nights a week and I couldn't sleep. Even if I didn't get a call, 
the next day, I was just this live wire of tension because I was so afraid I was going to miss those calls and that somebody was going to be alone. That <clears throat> So I took that experience and then the, you know, the kind of plea from my partner who was like, I don't know if I can, if I can do this because it's hard and look at the effect it has on you doing research and the victim advocacy. And so, yeah, there was a time when I didn't know what it would look like and it, and it has changed because of how hard the work is. Um, Mio and I actually were just talking earlier this week, um, working with the smart foundation and, and she's, you know, helping to go through messages and respond to people. And this conversation probably sounds familiar to you, Elizabeth. I was like, Hey, burnout is so common in this field. And that secondary, that vicarious trauma of constantly reading messages up from people who've been assaulted. Uh, we get that at UCASA. I help manage the social media. And the pleas that we get from people, there are times when I have to be like, I'm, I'm tapping out, guys. I can't read these messages anymore. Like, it's time for me to make another therapy session because I've got I've to talk to my, my girl, Samantha, uh, about what's going on because it's hard for me as a survivor. There are things that are triggering, you know, hearing that it could have been worse is like, oh, I was that, I was that girl who thought it could have been worse, who was embarrassed to say, James making me touch his penis by the dump was traumatic because it seems unfortunately so benign because we're swimming in sexual violence as a culture. So it felt like, I can't talk about that. There are people who are, are kidnapped. Oh my gosh, I don't, I'm not trying to make a comparison. Now I know there is no comparison. We each have to deal with things in our own way. Um, but yeah, so there, it's, it's changed because it is hard as a survivor. And this work, survivors flock to this work. I have met more people who've experienced violence and come into this field because they want to help. And sometimes they come before they've gotten some of the help that they need. And we've had to have conversations with people like victim advocacy isn't going to undo your trauma. You can't be out there. You're going to re-victimize people because you yourself haven't had a chance at healing. Um, anyway, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but yeah. That's okay. I mean, I think what you've shared is really important information and it's good for all of us to take in because kind of recapping, I mean, you can't compare what you've been through to anyone else. You can't even compare it to, it's realistic, unrealistic to compare it even to different experiences in your life because we're constantly changing and evolving and moving in different directions. And so, you know, what happened to me as a 14 year old girl um, when I was kidnapped and raped, you know, it was completely different to what happened to me just this past summer, um, sitting on the airplane as a, let's see, 31 year old woman. I mean, two both uh, extremely inappropriate experiences, but at the same time, completely different. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, sorry, I just have hijacked mm -hmm. all the talking per usual. <laughs> Well, but um, I wanted to I wanted to hear about um, Mio started the question of how how then did you get involved in jujitsu and Muay Thai and starting down this honestly very physical physically involved pathway and and was it healing to you Have you found 
uh, empowerment and peace in it. Yeah, I, the empowerment and peace that comes with the seemingly contradictory experience of a very controlled but violent sport is something that's hard to put into words until you do it. It's, it's a transformative experience, whether you are a survivor of any kind of trauma or not. I think it is impossible to enter the world of Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu and not leave changed. Um, there are some comparisons that people I think can make, like I've done CrossFit for instance, and there was a lot of cultural similarities in there, like just this very physical body work, it, it changes you completely. Um, but the path to Jiu Jitsu was one that started kind of funny. So I, I was in, not this part is not funny. I was in this very abusive relationship that started when I was in high school. I was 16 and it ended finally right before my 21st birthday. I decided I'd had enough. I need to get out. We'd been doing this on again, off again. I moved in, I moved out back and forth thing. And I moved home. My parents very graciously were like, please come home. We hate this guy. Don't go back. And I have one brother. He's six years younger than me. So he was 14, almost 15 at the time. And he had just watched this very terrible movie that I do not recommend called Never Back Down. <laughs> it is the MMA version of the Karate Kid for the late <laughs> 2000s. <laughs> it's very cheesy. And he decided he wanted to start training mixed martial arts. And he found this gym on MySpace and was like, will you go with me? And at the time I, I had put on a lot of weight because I was in this very controlling relationship. I was always somebody who loved to run and was pretty active. I wasn't allowed to go to the gym by my partner. Um, also I was eating cause I was stressed. I'm also just still an emotional eater, <laughs> but in, in a highly, you know, controlling situation, I had plumped up a little bit and was like, I'm going to have to start dating again. So some vanity led me to jujitsu, frankly. It's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do this. But we pulled up on, on the way. I was like, I'm feeling sick. I don't, I don't think I'm going to do this. Like this doesn't sound like a good idea, but we pulled up and there was one car in the parking lot. And I was like, okay, I can do this. I can go in. And I spent an hour huffing and puffing. I thought I was going to die. And I was hitting a heavy bag. I started with Muay Thai. And it was just the, the immediate gratification of hitting something and hearing that noise. I was hooked. But for the next month when I would go back, I almost threw up in the parking lot before class every time because I was so terrified. Um, and then I did, I refused to do jujitsu at first. The idea of somebody touching my neck, let alone choking me, I, I was not on board and I ended up becoming very close to a Muay Thai trainer who is still one of my best friends. And I was the only person that showed up for a Muay Thai class. And he was like, let's practice some ground stuff. Just the two of us. The beauty of jujitsu is if you're uncomfortable for any reason, say tap and I'm done. And we did that. And then it, it was just like a descent into madness. It was all I wanted to do. I failed the semester of college. <laughs> As a 
type A academic, I failed for a semester so I could go to jujitsu. Wow. Yeah. And, oh, and Chelsea, um, talk a little bit about like that healthy community and um, just how that helps survivors move forward. Yeah, so, so we do know that there are some predictive and protective factors uh, for sexual violence perpetration, uh, predictive factors like low social ties. Mio and I talked about this, why it's so important for uh, sports specific, like gyms, you know, football coaches, how influential they are, jujitsu coaches, if they're cultivating a really healthy space, that is something that uh, can actually prevent sexual violence, right? We know that strong social ties help in violence prevention. And then for me, I made this connection with this wonderful community of people. I mean, Mio was one of those people. And it was like, I can't go, I can't go back to this guy. These people, they believe in me. They're pushing me to do this scary, scary stuff every day, whether it's a box jump or learning to get choked and trust people and know that when I do this and tap, they're immediately going to let go. And so having those strong social ties is also a protective factor. I had people who I was like talking to about this guy named Pete and I would find myself telling stories like, oh yeah, you know, he sometimes just puts like a pillow over my face. And people were like, what the hell? Come again, like you're this very smart woman who, what? Like, why are you not realizing like he does that while you're supposed to be, you're having sex, he's supposed to love you and he's doing this thing. And it was like, you're right. Maybe that's like, oh yeah, seeing it through their eyes. I couldn't go back and the community, you know, it's, it's great. I did, I lost a bunch of weight, which was, you know, that vain reason that I started, but I gained this confidence in myself that I could do hard things and confidence from a community of people. And that's probably the best part. Weight is just a number in relation to gravity, but the relationships that I have from jujitsu are more, more precious to me than anything. And I think that's part of what our whole goal with developing smart defenses as well is this network of women, this physical empowering, you know, community of people that are going to back each other up and believe each other and support each other. And you're going to learn some amazing skills in the process. And I mean, I think Chelsea, for you and I both jujitsu has just brought us so much positivity and um, being able to find an outlet to share that, such a smart defense, it's like a dream come true for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and initially there was some hesitation. So I was you know, friends with a lot of folks who worked at the Rape Recovery Center. I was working with UCASA pretty early on because they're so active in the community. And when I was like, I wanna do a self-defense seminar, it was gosh, back in, I think it was 2012, there was a sexual assault that happened at the University of Utah campus. And I was like, I wanna, I wanna do this. I wanna put on this four weekend seminar at this gym because I know the people there. I know that they're gonna help create this safe space. And some of my, my friends at UCASA and at the Rape Recovery Center were like, we're supportive. 
However, yeah. self-defense is something that, and I'm sure you're experiencing this in, in feedback, Elizabeth and Mio, that um, we don't ever want to victim blame because no matter what you do, fight, flight, freeze, it's all acceptable to get you to the other side of whatever is happening. It's not wrong. I mean, I'm the perfect example of freezing multiple times in my life. Yeah. There's not a response. And anybody who faults you for that, quite frankly, is a monster because that is a response. It is a physiological response to trauma. You know, use just even the example of have your partner scare the crap out of you in your house. I'm like a fainting goat. Is Brooklyn around the corner and Ben is just standing there? I'm like, like, ugh. But so we wanted to be really careful with the first self defense seminar that I helped put on. Like, someone like me who's been training, you know, for nine to 11 years in there, or Mio who's been training for even longer than that, we could still experience a complete freeze and all that muscle memory could go out the window. Now, I think it's much less likely to happen for us because we train it constantly. Um, in the very beginning of training jujitsu, I had a drunk friend attack me at a party thinking he was being funny, but he was a 200 pound guy and he attacked me from behind. I had been doing jujitsu six months and I was able to get on his back and we call it like pancaking the person. He was completely flattened, couldn't get up. I couldn't choke him because I didn't have the skills yet, but his knees were bleeding by the time we were done. And he was like, get off of me. And our friends were like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why would, why would you do that? So we know these things work, but there's always been this tension of, self-defense we don't ever want a victim blame and i think there's a really thoughtful way to do it which you all are doing and engaging in um but the most important thing i think is that sense of just worth that comes from doing difficult things because the research does show that most people experience sexual violence at the hands of somebody that they know so we always say in the seminars that i have done with mio or other community partners um, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to arm lock your uncle who, if he's touching you, you know, or you're going to elbow somebody in the face. If it's your husband, you might, and they deserve it if they're assaulting you. Um, but yeah, self-defense was, it was kind of a, a, a tense exploration at first of how do we do this and do it in the right way. And for me, once I started focusing on that empowerment and, for me, it's so powerful to feel my body and feel control over my body. So sharing that with people has been really important. That's amazing. And I mean, have you, in your journey through, through self-defense, do you feel like you found healing in it as well? 100%. I, I, I know that it, it, none of the things that I've experienced were my fault. Um, that my body is resilient that it is just like jujitsu in jujitsu you tap a million times depending on how how good your partner is the day you're having um and it doesn't say anything about you as a practitioner um even in competition i mean Mio and i have gone out and we've won but we've also lost to people who on another day we might have have beat 
So that moment, that snapshot in time says nothing about who you are as a practitioner, just as those moments of violence that I've experienced say nothing about me as a person other than the fact that I'm resilient. And I have a very positive, wonderful relationship to sexuality. I have a great committed partner who I'm able to experience pleasure with. Like my body is so resilient and it's so much more than one or three of those events that I've experienced. Uh, one question that I am curious about, and maybe I misread you wrong or, or misunderstood, but how did you eventually realize what a healthy relationship is versus an unhealthy relationship? Because it sounds like you've got a really healthy relationship right now with your husband, with your partner. Um, but how did you get there? Because I think that's where a lot of victims or a lot of women, and particularly in domestic violence, get caught up on. They might get out from their original abuser, but then they might turn around and find a new partner who ends up being the same person in a different body. Yeah, you know, I'm very, very fortunate. And I, I always want to take a moment to acknowledge, you know, the privilege that I have. I, I am a, a white, able-bodied, cisgender woman living in the state of Utah. I occupy a middle-class status. Um, so my access to resources has been really good. Uh, family motto for, for my husband and I is rub some therapy on it. So... <laughs> Lots of therapy, Elizabeth. Um, and even in the beginning, when we started dating, uh, my husband was married before me, and he he went to a lot of therapy when he was going through a divorce to try to get through that. And this woman, Karen Kindred, is her name. She has a lot of great online resources. I point everyone to Karen. Relationships and healthy dating, uh, healthy conflict resolution. And we went to a couple of her seminars, like I think less than a year into our relationship. Like we're still in that honeymoon phase. We're still dating. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go to this like healthy communication seminar with you. And it changed the trajectory of, of our relationship and our experience. Um, I'm also a big, big believer in talking with people, that network of folks that I have, people at the gym, people in my gender studies program who were navigating, figuring out healthy relationships themselves, helped me see what was possible. Um, I use this, it's kind of a, a bad analogy, but I, I, I stick with it. Uh, when I was growing up, my family, almost every dinner, we ate cottage cheese, with seasoned salt on it as a side dish. The first time I saw somebody put fruit on their cottage cheese, I was like, what are you doing? That is disgusting. Don't you guys put seasoned salt on it? And the person was like, what are you talking about? This is something you pair with sweet things and you eat it as a dessert. And I was like, no, no, you, no, you don't. And, and I think that healthy relationships and healthy sexual behavior, you have to talk about it or you don't know that it's not, it's horrible, it's abusive for your partner to put a pillow over your face while you're having sex, right? Smart woman here, I just didn't put two and two together. I was, I didn't have the information, I didn't have the self-esteem. Um, so I'm a big believer in talking, talking about these things. Part of the reason that we have so much sexual violence is we don't talk about healthy sex enough. 
we don't talk about what it is like to enthusiastically consent with a partner. And unless we start doing that, we're in big trouble. So let's talk about that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love, and I'm so grateful that, I mean, Chelsea's been in my life since my children were very small and that enthusiastic consent and talking about sex education and talking about your body in a frank manner is part of how I've chosen to raise my daughters to know that, you know, we actually just had a very frank discussion yesterday about what a boner was. And my 10 year old was like, blood fills the penis. <laughs> like she was so like, she couldn't even imagine, yeah. but it's important to me that they know the physiological functions of men and women and you know, how babies are made. And of course I try and make it age appropriate, but um, I think having the conversation is huge and it's, it's hard, you know, it's embarrassing. It's private. It's there. There are all these other stigmas around it that we kind of have to just chip away at. I mean, I don't know, Chelsea, what are your thoughts on how we have those conversations? Not just with kids, but yeah, I mean, I think that looking at sexual, through the spectrum of, of sexual violence, if we want to model healthy sexual behavior, I think the best way to do that is through a public health model. Sexual mm -hmm. violence is a public health crisis. Um, you look at things like drinking prevention, HIV prevention, seatbelt adoption. These things, they're individual, community, and social programs that we have in place. So it's at home that you're talking about, hey, it's, and it's called an erection. It's also called a boner or these other terms or whatever you use. And then having it in your community, if it's the faith community that you're a part of, a jujitsu community, hey, we have frank conversations in jujitsu about that we don't make jokes if somebody does get an erection because it's a physiological response to sometimes rubbing up against people. We ask that you get up when you leave the mat and we, we can talk about it if we need to. There, I've rolled with young men who have gotten erections and it was not an assault situation, me against them or them against me. Um, and then that larger social perspective of, are we talking about it in schools in an age appropriate way? Are we modeling good behavior in media? Are, are they seeing, you know, good narratives around changing bodies using the puberty example. Voices are dropping and hairs growing in places for everyone in the school. And how is that modeled in, in media? How, how do we talk about that in a way that's appropriate and compassionate? And so, yeah, I think it's, it's that public health approach is everything. And I think compassion is that sort of key moment there because I don't know anyone who went through puberty gracefully. I don't know anyone who like heard about sex for the first time and wasn't like, what? <laughs> yeah, you're what? gonna what with what? No. <laughs> Disgust, I mean like my first, re I remember my first reaction. My first reaction was, I will never do that. That's disgusting. That, that is where the pee comes out of. What is wrong with these people? <laughs> Yeah. And, and so and I think it needs to be done with compassion and understanding. And you need to almost separate. I mean, 
wherever you are, whatever your faith is, whatever your cultural norms are, it's almost like you have to separate from that to have these conversations with compassion and understanding. Yeah. And there's nothing more human than a sexual experience. We live in bodies that are built for pleasure. They're, they're built for pleasure. They're built for pain. We are sensory beings. And I think learning to, to feel that and to talk about that is, is just so incredibly important. And, and like you said, culture, it, it does play a huge part in it. Um, learning when we can kind of take a step back and say, oh, maybe other cultures do this differently and, and that's okay. Um, they're not wrong, but you can boil it down to this is a human experience and there is nothing wrong with it. We've got to get rid of the shame around sex and bodies. I, I really try to do that. I have 15 nieces, nephews, and nibblings. Uh, nibblings is our, our gender creative term there. Um, but you know, I'm giving my little niece a bath. And if she starts touching her vulva, I explain to her, you're in the bathtub. That probably feels nice. We're cleaning ourselves, you know. That's, I'm not smacking her hand and saying, don't touch that. That's not what little girls do. You know, good girls don't do that. And starting at a really, really young age, just being so candid. And then modeling enthusiastic consent in everything that I, I do. I, tr I fail, but I try really hard. I ask those little ones, can I have a hug? And if they say no, I say, okay, I love you. I'll see you next time. I don't say, please, because if, if my husband, Ben, was like, I'd like to have sex, and I said, no, I'm not feeling good, and he said, please, I'd be like, who are you? Get away from me. That's not how we behave. We don't coerce each other into sex. Like, so modeling that with, hey, do you want a brownie? No, thanks. I'm, I'm watching my weight for a jujitsu tournament. People will try to force feed you a brownie. If <laughs> stuff like that it's like we have to stop pushing people beyond their boundaries because it makes us feel good because I do think a culture of not being able to accept no is a huge part of the problem and also learning to just say no and stand no is a complete sentence stand in your no I'm not interested end of story is is really important and something that I want to teach to those nieces, nephews, and nibblings. And I'm currently five and a half months pregnant. This little person is going to learn very early on. Unless it's to me about bedtime, <laughs> you, can, you can say no. There's boundaries. You're a person who gets to feel comfortable. And I think that's also an important, um, important for the rest of us to be able to experience is when someone says no to you, don't take offense. I mean, if you're doing something wrong, then yeah, you better take offense and you better start running for the hills because if you're doing something wrong, like it's game over. But just as like your average person, I mean, if I offer you a brownie and you're going into a jujitsu competition and you say no, then I should be adult enough to be like, you know what? Okay. Like respect. I, I get it. Like, good for you. Like, um, you know, let me support you in that. And, and vice versa. I mean, 
it's highly unlikely that I'll turn down a brownie, probably ever. Same. <laughs> but, I mean, whatever that is. Um, I think it's important that we that we learn to to be able to take no and to not worry about. I mean, I know I've been guilty of this so many times when someone offers me something and you know they're doing it out of kindness and they want to make me feel comfortable or you know they're trying to welcome me and I'm like oh thank you yes okay sure and I'll say okay or I'll say yes even though I don't really want it mm -hmm. um, and there's a difference of course between being gracious and accepting um, versus just saying no um, there, there certainly is a difference there but at the same time not allowing yourself to be so kind into doing something that you don't want to do because you're worried about offending the other person. I mean, valuing yourself enough to say no and not worry about offending someone else and, and be fine with that decision. Yeah, and, and one of the common rape acceptance myths is this idea that a person says no, but they mean yes. And unfortunately, there has been this horrible setup, particularly put on women, where we're sexual gatekeepers. It taught that a lot, um, that we, do sh we should say no when we, when we mean yes. And now perpetrators will often apply that thinking to a no. They'll say, well, she said no, but she meant yes. And, and then they proceed to perpetrate, right? And... I think that it, it's a really difficult conversation to have because again, it is never the person's fault who, who is assaulted. The only thing, the only person who can prevent rape is a rapist. They need to not, not perpetrate in the first place. But this idea of if I mean no, especially in a higher stakes situation, like you said, there's a difference between accepting a cup of tea when you're like, I really don't want this, but it's pretty low stakes versus saying yes when you meant no or no when you meant yes when your health is at risk here, mental and physical and emotional health in a sexual situation. We need to teach people no means no because this idea is so common in reported sexual assaults from perpetrators and from victims. I mean, I think I feel like I could talk all day to you about this topic. This topic is like right up my, my alley, right on my soapbox. <laughs> yeah. um, but I guess we are almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you if you had one thing you want not just women, but anyone to know out there, what is it? Oh, wow. Um, I, the most important thing is that it is never your fault if you experience something like this. There is nothing that you did to deserve it. Um, there's nothing that you did to signal to this person that you should be treated this way. There's nothing a part of your reaction that made it continue. Um, it's just, it's never ever the victim's fault. You are so right. You are so right. It does not matter if you are running naked down the street, drunk out of your mind, mm -hmm. that is never a green light for someone to come up and sexually abuse you or take advantage of you. Rape is rape, abuse is abuse, there's no comparison, and it's, it's not your fault, ever.
ever. You're so right. Well, I definitely want to have you back again. I have loved talking to you. You are incredible. But um, I want to say thank you so much for, for talking to us today, for taking time out of your day. I, I so appreciate it. And I look forward to having you back again. Yeah, thank you so much. And I look forward to next time. Thanks, Chelsea. See you. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Smart Talks today. We hope to catch you again next time. See you soon.